Um, good to have you here today, and I hope you're ready to get into God's Word. We are in Acts chapter 4, as Dwayne mentioned, and um, I'm sure, just as we get started here, just think, I'm sure that we've all had uh, situations where we had, like, exciting news to share. And, and when you have that exciting news to share, you, you know, you would say that I can't, I can't even contain myself. I got to tell somebody and maybe it's an award you won, or maybe you got a new job or maybe, you know, just got engaged and you got to show off the bling, or maybe it's, uh, you know, you're showing off your ultrasound because you just found out that you're pregnant, but you have news to share with people. And in today's passage, the apostles are in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and, and that was their situation. They had news to share, that, and they just couldn't not tell people about Jesus. And as we look at the passage, the almost like too obvious application of this um, it, it, to our lives is really, the, do we have the same need to tell the news? Do we have this same unrestrained enthusiasm and determination to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are not yet believers? And, and the reality is, you know, we should. We should have that enthusiasm. We should have that determination. We should have the good news inside of us. And it should be like, I, I can't even contain myself. I have to tell you about what I know about Jesus Christ. And so that's the setup. Let's read the passage. This is Acts chapter 4, 13 through 22. And um, the they in the first line is the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, They had nothing to say in opposition, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But... Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And that's really old. So let's pray together. Father, you are good to us. We've sung of your goodness and your kindness. And among your kindnesses toward us is, is the opportunity to gather here, to be in this place, to be with these people. And Father, to have the incredible privilege of having your word in our hands and, and to hear it. And so, God, I pray that you would bless this time. We, we need to hear from you. And I pray, God, that in these moments, as privileged and blessed as we are, we would lean in to hear what you have for us today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So before we get at the, like, the big idea, the main point of this message, I want to do a little setup as to, as to how we're, we're getting to where we understand what this passage is really about. And I, I want... I want to take you to chapter 6, actually, so a little bit ahead here in chapter 6 and verse 7. And 
I want you to see something that Luke records here. And after this episode is done with the, the man who is healed from his disability and then all the aftermath of all of that, we get to this comment that Luke gives us about what's going on with the church and the ministry. And he says this in Luke six, uh, sorry, in Acts 6, 7. He says this, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then notice this, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now the question as I seek to understand this passage, as we all seek to understand this passage in chapter 4, to go ahead to chapter 6 and look back and ask the question, how exactly did these priests come to faith? Because we see these priests in the Gospels, we see these priests in the early part of the book of Acts, and what we see of them is that they're opposing the faith. They're, they're persecuting the apostles. They're persecuting the Christians. They're not, they're not seeking Christ. They're critics of Christ and, and even violent in their criticisms and their persecutions. And so when I read chapter 6, verse 7, I ask myself the question, what brought about their conversion? How exactly did they become Christians? How did these violent and vocal critics of Christ How did they become believers? And what we'll see is this. What the vocal critic of the faith needs from you and from me as Christians in order to be converted. That's what we're going to see. What do they need from us? What is the vocal critic in your life? And I'm sure you have one. What does that vocal critic need from, from you? Well, let's look at this. We're going to see four things. The first one is this. The vocal critic needs to see boldness from us. The vocal critic needs to see boldness from us. The council, verse 13 says, we're back in chapter 4, 413. The the council saw the boldness of Peter and John. And I want us to really understand what this word boldness means here. So I have a couple definitions. The first one comes from Cambridge Dictionary, and it's the boldness that we would more naturally think about. It's a brave and confident way of behaving that shows no fear. That to us would be boldness. A brave and confident way of behaving that shows no fear. But now if I add this second definition, remember the New Testament is written in Greek, so those Greek words and the definitions that they have are so important. But here's what we see. The right boldness really here in terms of a New Testament understanding, it brings a a nuanced understanding to boldness. The right, okay, or the liberty, the, the right that we have, the right and the willingness to express one's opinion freely. In other words, I feel really bold in terms of my right, my, my ability, my freedom to bring this word to you. And I think you can see the difference there in that boldness that we would normally think about it is not at all about brashness. It's not at all about, you know, nerviness. Okay. It's not that I'm nervy enough to do it. It's not really that. It's certainly not that alone because that carries such a negative concept or idea to it. In other words, boldness is not, to use an expression that we use today, boldness here in in our evangelism is not that I'm all up in your grill about it. Okay, it's not that. It's a freedom to speak. In fact, I would say it this way. It's a willing exercise 
of our liberty, okay, we feel free to speak in this way, of our liberty to speak openly and confidently and straightforwardly about what we believe. So that's the boldness. And this boldness was actually remarkable coming from Peter and John because everyone knew, the text tells us, everyone knew that they were uneducated common men. That's not to say that they were stupid. They weren't idiots, not dummies. They were smart men, but they had committed their life to being smart and educated about fishing. They had spent their entire life and career on the Sea of Galilee, running the family business, learning how to be fishermen. They were smarter about being fishermen than people in Jerusalem were, where there was no water to fish at. But they had never trained theologically. That's what it really refers to. You would expect this kind of boldness, this, this freedom to speak, from educated men, from men who had been to rabbinical school, who had learned their theology, who were professionals religiously, if we could put it that way. But these are Galilean fishermen, not theologians, not scholars. So no one would have thought about one of those, a theologian or a scholar or a rabbi speaking confidently in this way. It was just so shocking that fishermen were doing this, that they were able to express themselves so forthrightly. And that's why it says here that, that the council was astonished astonished. Now, what brought about this boldness? How did they get this boldness? Because it obviously didn't come naturally. It It didn't come from education. So how did they get this boldness? And more importantly, how do we get it? Are you wondering that? Hopefully you are. How do I get that boldness? And the answer is right here in verse 13, right at the end. The council recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. I want you to think about that. The source of their boldness is not that they had been to rabbinical school. It's not that they had been educated. It wasn't from experience. The source of their boldness was not that they had just downed a Red Bull. Okay? It's, it's, it's not, it, it wasn't that they drank some you know, liquid courage. You know what that is, right? It's not that they had read Dale Carnegie or they had gone to Toastmasters and learned how to speak. It is because, and underline this phrase, it is because they had been with Jesus. The difference maker in their ability to speak forthrightly about Jesus, to be bold in their witness, the difference maker was time with Jesus. Could our whole evangelistic strategy really be that simple? To simply spend more time with Jesus. The implication is, that I couldn't possibly spend more time with Jesus and not, not feel motivated to tell more people about him. Not come away feeling the right and the willingness to express my opinion, my belief, my conviction, my experience about Jesus Christ. Time with Jesus compels us to witness for Jesus. Time with Jesus compels us to witness for Jesus. I'm not sure we really have thought about it in this way. I'm not sure I've thought about it in this way before. More time with Jesus will make me a better witness to Jesus. 
When I think about all the times over the past 18 plus years that we've been a church and I've been preaching here and how many times I've pointed to various resources to help you witness, to help us all understand the gospel in such a way that we could actually explain it to someone. I'm not sure how many hundreds, maybe thousands of booklets that we have given to you and put into your hands to make available so that you could witness to people and learn how to explain the gospel. But I do wonder what has come of all of that. We see some conversions and there are some people in this room right now who have given their life to Jesus Christ as a result of this ministry and people witnessing to them. But do we see enough conversions relative to the scope of our ministry and the resources that are available to us? I I just think about it, um, notwithstanding the weather today and the fact that this service has um, fewer people in it, um, nine o'clock was still packed as as is normal, and on a normal weekend, we're seeing somewhere in the mid-900s coming to church here uh, for the two services. Now, I start to think about 900 people coming, and I think about all the people that you know. I'm just trying to get a sense of the scope of our influence. People in your family who don't know Jesus, people in your workplace that don't know Jesus, people in your neighborhood who don't know Jesus, friends that you might have who don't know Jesus, clubs that you belong to, whatever it is. That all of a sudden we're taking the 900 or so people that come here on a weekend and now we're multiplying that out and we're saying the influence is not 900 or 1,000 here. The influence now is 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 or more who are influenced from this church. It's incredible to think about. We've often said what is lacking in our evangelistic efforts is not knowledge and it's not opportunity, but it's boldness. And now we find out that boldness comes from being with Jesus. So what we have is not a deficiency to explain the gospel, not a deficiency in terms of relationships and opportunity. What we have is a worship and devotion deficiency. We're simply not spending enough time with Jesus. What needs to change then to turn that around? I'm actually going to leave that with you. What needs to change? Every one of us asking this question, what needs to change in my life to give me more time with Jesus? Because that's the key to our evangelistic strategy. All right, here's a second. What the vocal critic of the faith also needs from you is reasonableness. Reasonableness. For too long, Christians have emphasized the wrong things when speaking to unbelievers. I mean, I don't play the drums, but I do have a drum that I like to bang from time to time. And this is one of those drums that I, I like to boom, 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 boom. I want to bang this drum again. For too long, Christians have emphasized the wrong things when speaking to unbelievers. You know, the, the reality is that we've been so consumed as a church, and I'm talking about the greater Christian church, so consumed with cultural engagement. In other words, trying to make our country, make Canada reflect Christian morals, that in fact we have done more harm than good in actually leading individuals to a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
The challenge is that we as a church and as Christians have now been labeled as social conservatives. In fact, we might even label ourselves as social conservatives. Some would go so far as to look at the things that we believe and push us into the camp of right wing. They are right wingers. And if there's any camp I don't want to be in, it's the right wing camp. I don't believe any Christian belongs there. The problem, too, is that we generally would describe our church as an evangelical church. And the word evangelical has been so politicized, especially in the United States, but that has, like a tsunami, come over the border and influenced us here in Canada so that we're even cautious about using the word evangelical and feel like when we use it, we need to be so careful to explain that it's not that American kind of politically engaged evangelicalism that we're talking about. To the culture, when I start talking about this, to the culture, social conservatives, right-wing, evangelical, whatever it is, to the culture, they look at us and we have become unreasonable in their minds. You know, not once in the New Testament are we instructed to engage politically in transforming a country. Not once in the New Testament. I'll say it again. Not once in the New Testament are we instructed to engage in such a way that we would transform a country. Not once. If you have a verse for me, share it with me. If you want to get there, what you would have to do is you'd have to go into the Old Testament, lift some verses, twist and distort them around, verses that pertain to the theocracy that was called Israel when God was working in a certain way with that people prior to the coming of Messiah. You'd have to go to verses about Israel and try to apply them today to make that theology work. The mandate given to us by Christ, the mission that we actually have as Christians, is make disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go into all the world and make disciples. Teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the mission. In Acts 1, 8 um, language, it's, uh, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The mission is to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The mission is to take people who are not disciples of Jesus and make them disciples of Jesus. The mission is not make a Christian nation. And so as this relates to reasonableness, Christians have indeed been too often unreasonable in requiring society's compliance with a biblical ethic behave this way quite apart from having Jesus and, and that's not the mission. Unbelievers have seen us as unreasonable and have dismissed our message because we have become more concerned that they're gay than that they're saved. We have become more concerned that they're living together than that they're saved. We have become more concerned that they're smoking weed than that they're saved. And we need to get our, our priorities back in order. So the council, back to our passage, verse 14, the council sees the man who's healed standing beside them. And they had nothing to say in opposition. You can't deny the fact that this man was now healed. 
And they're baffled about it. So they do what they're going to do as a council. Remember, there's 70 of them sitting in this semicircle. And the high priest, so there's 71 of them. And Peter and John have now testified. The witness was there. They all get dismissed. And now they're going to deliberate in this, what's called an in-camera session. They're going to talk to each other. Verse 15 said, they conferred with one another. Verse 16 saying, what shall we do with these men? And they're being motivated by fear and by pressure from the people, which is classic politics. What shall we do with these men for that, this is verse 16, for that a notable sign has been performed through them. That's evident to everyone. Everyone in Jerusalem has saw it and we can't deny it. And they're not saying it here, but the message of Christ flowing from that healing was really the greater problem. That's why they're saying, we don't want you to speak anymore in Jesus' name. In other words, everything Peter and John did was reasonable. It was not unnecessarily provocative. But the only play that the religious leaders had at this point was attempt, was, was a, really a, a feeble attempt to stop the spread, verse 17 says, stop the spread among the people. And the only way they had to do that was to warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. That's all they had. Well, I, well let's just warn them. I mean, all the evidence is this amazing healing took place. The people are all super excited about it. But they have no play. There's no way to charge them. They can't imprison them. They can't beat them. They can't do anything other than warn them. So this is their big plan. We'll tell them not to do it anymore. Let's just warn them. That should work. I think that'll work. Don't you think that'll work? 70 of them saying, yeah, that'll work. So they, so they warn them. Verse 18, they called them in, they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then if you look down to verse 21, the first part, they further threatened them and then they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of their reasonableness, because they were focused on the mission, their words and their works were consistent with what Jesus had given them to do. And, and, and are we reasonable people? The Apostle Paul actually uses this word in Philippians 4, 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. People outside the church, people inside the church, be a reasonable person. And then he, he says, the reason why you must be reasonable as a Christian is because the Lord is at hand. There's an urgency attached to this. That word reasonable, what he's really saying is be gentle, be gracious, be forbearing with people. The vocal critic of the faith needs this from us. If he or she is to consider Christ, to consider salvation, to consider the gospel, you and I must be reasonable in our presentation of it. Ready for another? What they also need is clarity. Now this is tough because I I think um, sometimes we can be really unclear about things. How many people here like clarity? Okay, about half the room. The rest of you are fine confused, apparently. (laughs) 
How many people like clarity? I would like us all to be clear about this right now, right? Yeah, we, I think people like clarity. You want to know, you know, the facts about a thing and you want to be sure about it. And the council here is in a bit of a spot because the people are so on board and, and yet they're being very indecisive about how to handle all of this. In fact, the expression is that they're, they're pretty mealy-mouthed. They know how they actually feel, but they're not able to execute on that. So they did this little warning and they kind of threatened them, but they're not really saying what they really believe and not really acting upon it because they can't. Verse 19, though, in contrast to that, you have Peter and John. They bring incredible clarity when they say whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. That's kind of like a mic drop moment, don't you think? I mean, that's a, that's a line in the sand that they're drawing right now. I mean, they're saying to them, you know, whatever you decide about that, that's between you and God. But as far as we're concerned as Christians, we've already judged it. We've already determined this. We've already realized that it's, it's right and good and the best thing to obey God rather than you, rather than any human institution. That's the line that they have drawn here. And then they say this. We cannot, verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I mean, that's the kind of verse that just gives you chills, doesn't it? We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This this court order, A.T. Robertson said it this way, this court order stepped between their conscience and God. The court order got right there between their conscience and God. And they weren't going to allow that to happen. I think about all the ways that we can allow something to get between our conscience and God. I think about what the Apostle Paul said in his letter, 1 Corinthians 4, 4. He said to the Corinthians, I'm not aware of anything against myself. People are accusing me of things, but I am not aware of anything against myself. One translation said, my conscience is clear. What an awesome way to live. Amen? To have a clear conscience... To not be aware of anything that needs to be dealt with before God. To know that between your conscience and God, there's nothing in between that. And that's where Peter and John were. There was nothing between them and their conscience. And so they're saying, we can't contain this message. We can't stop ourselves from telling people about Jesus. We can't hold in the gospel. And I feel a little condemnation when I read this. Because I think I'm not a a whole lot like them. But that's not my situation. That that I can, in fact, not speak of the things that I've seen and heard. And I've done it plenty. Those, Those times when, you know, the Lord puts an opportunity right in front of you, a person who doesn't know Jesus, and you have the words of life, and you could say something, you could share your story, you could invite them to church, you could uh, ask them a question about God, like you have the opportunity, it's teed up, it's right in front of you, and you shrink back and you do nothing, and you walk back to your car, you just know you blew it. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's done that. We can, in fact, not speak of what we have seen and heard, We shrink back from answering questions when we're asked. 
We shrink back from sharing our story of redemption and how Christ changed us. We shrink back from inviting people to church or to explain the gospel when we're asked. And the question is, why, why, why do we shrink back? Why are we so not like these apostles? I thought a lot about it. And I thought about a man who greatly influenced my life in my early days of walking with Jesus. And I wonder how many people know uh, Keith Green. We have a picture of him here. How many people know who Keith Green is? How many people, just raise your hand if you have no idea who Keith Green is. That's helpful to me, actually. So that's why I want to tell you a little bit about his story. Keith Green remains one of the most influential Christian singer-songwriters of all time. And those of you who know his music know that it was more prophetic, really. Um, There was a very strong prophetic voice in his music and that Keith cared nothing for entertaining his crowds. He didn't go to concerts, per se, to entertain uh, the crowds. And he didn't care at all about satisfying the music industry. In fact, at a certain point, he decided that they would just give all their music away. And so they were producing, you know, albums back in the day, uh, vinyls and, and, and cassettes and sending them out, but not taking any money for it. He and his wife, Melody, in fact, saw that his music ministry was just really an avenue for them to carry on the ministry they really wanted to do, which was a really um, hands-on, love of Jesus, compassion ministry that saw many thousands of people come to faith in Christ. And then for a lot of people like me, new Christians at the time, we just found our faith come alive and ignited as a result of Keith's influence. The thing is that Keith made his impact for eternity in a very short period of time because tragically, he died in a, in a small plane crash with two of his children in 1982. Uh, he was only 28 years old. The thing about his music is um, it's filled with urgency. There's a clarity and simplicity about his music that's gripping and remarkable. He preached in song. And I'm, I'm saying all of that really to set up what I think is the main reason that we shrink back, or at least one of the primary reasons why we shrink back from sharing the gospel with, with people around us who need it. He sang a song uh, called, No One Believes in Me Anymore. And the song is sung from Satan's perspective. In fact, the subtitle to the song is Satan's Boast. So imagine these are the words of Satan My job keeps getting easier as time keeps slipping away. I can imitate your brightest light and make your night look just like day. I put some truth in every lie to tickle itching ears. You know, I'm drawing people just like flies because they like what they hear. I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. You know, it's getting very simple now because no one believes in me anymore. The reality is if we don't believe in Satan and we don't believe in hell, there's no compelling reason to share the gospel. A pervasive trend that's happening in the church today is a moving away from believing in evil personified, not believing in the devil, not believing in Satan, and many, many professing Christians who now would say they don't believe that there's a hell, and if there is no Satan, if there is no evil, if there is no hell, why bother sharing our faith? 
We have this example of Peter and John in front of us about preaching the gospel to people who don't have Jesus and the urgency of doing it and being clear about it in the face of all kinds of reasons why we wouldn't do that. But for us, primary among those reasons may in fact be that we don't believe in Satan, that we don't believe in hell for those who don't have Christ. Because if the unsaved are actually headed to a Christless eternity, why then are we so passive about our evangelism? Satan has convinced us that he and hell no longer exists. And if they don't exist, then there's no urgency. But then is the church. If there's no Satan and there's no hell and there's no urgency to proclaim the gospel, then what then is the church? Nice place to hang out on a Sunday morning. A great group of people, a nice way to live. It's a club, it's a social group. It's therapy, it's group therapy. Life is hard and I've found a way with a bunch of other people to to live in a way that kind of makes it a little easier. No Satan, no hell, no urgency. This is no better than going to yoga or eating better or decluttering your house. It's just a nice way to live. But the gospel is more than that, isn't it? It's more than a nice way to live. It's a rescue mission. Everyone in this room who has Christ at one time was on the path to a Christless eternity, eternal damnation. Every single one of us who's genuinely saved in this room was lifted out of that, found the forgiveness of sins, and was given the promise of eternity because of the work of Christ. It's a rescue mission. You know, everyone's glad to come back to Acts 4, Acts 3 and 4. Everyone's glad that the lame man isn't lame anymore. I'm glad that that happened for him and that his life is now better. But we need to look past that to see that the greater thing he receives is not that he could now walk. The greater thing that he receives is that he knows Christ and his sins are forgiven. That his eternal salvation is assured And so let's be clear about the mission and the message. Let's be clear to people who don't know Christ. Let's be clear to the vocal critic because they need this. Their eternal destiny hangs in the balance. I have one more. You okay with that? Finally this. What the vocal critic of the faith needs from you, Christian, is Christ. Not you. Not you, not anyone else. It's certainly appropriate to thank people for the, to thank God rather for the people that he brought into your life to save you. But, but please remember, they didn't save you. You know, when people get baptized here, very often they'll say, I was so grateful to this person, explained the gospel to me. My wife was so patient with me. My husband kind of led me to Christ or my parents or whatever the story is. It's great to thank God for the way that he that he, or the people that he used to bring you to faith in Christ. But make no mistake, if it was your spouse that was so patient with you while you were an unbeliever, make no mistake, your spouse did not die on the cross for your sins. Your spouse did not shed their blood for the redemption of your sins. Your spouse did not rise from the dead that you might have new life. 
Your Harvest Kids teacher didn't do that for you. Your youth leader, that friend who sat across the table at Tim Hortons, did not give their life for you. They were not risen from the dead for you. Christ gave his life. Christ shed his blood. Christ was raised from the dead. The lame man illustrates this for us because he sensed a very close attachment to Peter and John in in, in the early part of chapter 3 after he's healed and he's walking into the temple with them in chapter 3 verse 11. It says that he clung to Peter and John. Of course he did. But then we read here in our passage, verse 21, the last part, all were praising God for what had happened. No one's praising Peter and John, thankfully. They knew that the Lord had done something that was well beyond human capabilities. Verse 22 isn't just like an interesting fact at the end. Oh, by the way, the guy was, you know, in his 40s. It's not just an interesting fact. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. It's not just that he was 40 and he'd lived a really hard life up until then. He had to beg and people had to carry him to the temple. It was all such a very difficult way to live his life. And isn't it wonderful and isn't it awesome that now he doesn't have to do that and he can walk and he can make a living for himself. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that nice? Yes, it is. It was so long that he lived that way. But, but, but that's not the point of it. It was that he was 40 in his 40s. And for more than four decades, thousands of people had walked by him sitting at the beautiful gate at the temple. Year after year after year, they had walked by maybe putting a few coins into his cup along the way, but not one single person who passed by was able to help him actually walk. No physician who came by was able to say to them, I have a treatment for you, or let me help you with that. I think with some therapy, or we have this surgery, or this is what we could do for you. No one was able to help him for more than four decades. It was something only God could have done. It was was unexplainable. By any other means, his healing was unexplainable. I don't have a lot of fears. I don't have a lot of fears about our ministry, but I have one glaring fear. I fear that too much of our ministry is explainable. I fear that while we give lip service to, you know, what God is doing here, isn't it awesome what God is doing here? And we say that, we, in, in essence, we praise God for this. The possibility exists that we have manufactured it. That we've done it in our own strength. We're very capable people. We have incredible leaders and servants who are occupying ministry roles in, in all these various expressions of ministry throughout this building. We have incredible talents. We bring, we bring passions to what we do and enthusiasm for the things that we do. And it's possible that we could do it all in our own strength and that the Lord is not in it at all. But what makes the difference then? It's, it's not that we shouldn't bring those talents. It's not that we shouldn't bring those passions. It isn't that we shouldn't engage in that way. We should still be bringing all of that to the table, but then also be completely dependent on God for the result. In fact, 
Verse 8 of chapter 4, which we saw, I believe, last week, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit just before he preached. That it was the Holy Spirit who, who gave him the power to speak as he spoke and to see the results. Peter was supernaturally empowered by the Spirit of God so that when he healed that man and when he spoke the gospel, people didn't even see Peter. There was no confusion. They praised God when the man was healed. They didn't see Peter. They saw Christ. I want that. I want that for me. I want that for our worship team. They want that. They don't want you to see them and their playing and their skill and their ability. They want you to see Christ in the lyrics of the words and in the, in, in the spirit moving in the room. Our Harvest Kids teachers and those that are serving in every different capacity in this church, they don't want you to look at them. They want you to see Christ. We want to see a moving of God's Holy Spirit in this place so that what happens here becomes unexplainable. I want that for all of us. And when we have that, when we have the unexplainable happening because the Holy Spirit is moving in our midst, when we're pointing to Christ and not to ourselves, here's what's going to happen. Ready for it? A great many of the vocal critics of the faith that you and I know will become obedient to the faith, just as those priests would. I hope you believe that. I hope moving out from here that you will be bold in your witness, that you will be reasonable in your witness, that you will be clear in your witness, and that you will point to Jesus Christ. The vocal critic needs it from us. Let's pray. Father, thank you again. Um, I believe that you have spoken uh, by your spirit with clarity in this room and to us uh, again today. And Father, I I would pray, um, Father, for those thousands and thousands of people that are in the sphere of influence of this church. It's incredible to think about. And I pray, God, that, that a great army of witnesses will rise up from these seats today and will uh, commit themselves once again to the great mission that you've entrusted to us. That we will be bold, and we will be reasonable, and we will be clear, and we will point to Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for all those who don't know Christ. And I would pray for a great harvest of souls this Christmas. That we would see loved ones and friends and co-workers and even strangers come to faith in Christ.